And with the music, it's the St. Michael singers to start us off with Come, let us join our cheerful songs with angels round the throne. Teresa Keswick is a Carmelite nun in an enclosed order in Norfolk. She talks to Michael Barclay about how she became a Christian and about how she chose to become a nun in her 30s. If you'd like to hear the whole interview, you can hear it under Private Passions or on BBC Sounds on the BBC website. Nearly 40 years ago, Teresa Keswick exchanged her life as a London lawyer to become a nun in an enclosed and largely silent Carmelite monastery in Norfolk. She's devoted her life to prayer and work and has become a highly skilled embroiderer. Since 2014, she's written a regular column for the Oldie magazine. And I think you prefer me to call you Teresa rather than Sister Teresa. Who does call you Sister? Uh, I think really only the bishop and my dentist. <laughs> Most people just call me Teresa. <laughs> It's fascinating uh, to talk to you because we've all, as it happens, lived much more enclosed lives over the past year. And some people have found unexpected contentment in their pared-down routines. But, of course, others have struggled terribly and might find it strange to consider that you've chosen a life that's largely removed from the outside world. You're talking to me from your monastery. We sent you a little sound recorder to make this programme, and we're talking on the landline. So can you just set the scene? Describe the monastery to me. Well, it's a very large, what was once upon a time, a stately home, going back to Tudor times. So we have a lot of space. And it's set in 
Norfolk landscape, so we have quite a lot of sugar beets surrounding us. And on cheerful years, we have barley. So that there's no feeling of being, as it were, in prison, which, having been to some Carmelite monasteries in towns, one doesn't feel it's a prison, but the emphasis is very much less on the sort of freedom that we have here at Quittenham. How has the pandemic affected your lives in the monastery? Um, The main thing has been lack of outside visitors because obviously we don't want to catch it ourselves because if one sister caught the virus, the whole lot would. But apart from that, I think the only thing we suffered from, and that was at the very beginning, was a lack of debt of <laughs> because the, the supermarket didn't have it. But really our lives have hardly changed at all except for the consciousness that we have of how very, very difficult it is for other people and how very unhappy some of them have become and they haven't had the sort of Carmelite training that we've had and they don't live in a big house. And I suppose that that part of the whole raison d'etre of your life there is to consider those of the outside world and, as it were, pray for them. Yes, the, the whole purpose of being an enclosed nun is to be here for the world, praying, and praying for those people who either can't pray or don't pray. There's a mass of other work going on from cooking to cleaning to running a small um, business of mail-order business, all sorts of things. But our main work is definitely prayer and prayer for the world. You grew up after the war in Essex on the edge of London. Uh, It sounds like a, a rather idyllic childhood in some ways. It wasn't, it wasn't. I had a governess rather than go to school I didn't go to school till I was 11, so I was very much a country child. But I was rather lonely because my brothers were at boarding school by the time I was four or five. So I went... I didn't go to school till I was 11, and the first school I went to was in Paris, and actually I was thrilled when my feet hit the Paris pavements. I loved being in a huge city, (laughs) rather perversely. Do you feel you had um, uh, a religious sensibility as a child? None at all, no. I was really quite a confirmed atheist until I was till I was 12 and we had a preacher giving a preached retreat to 12-year-olds in total silence for three days, which is quite a tall order. And he somehow made sense of the whole Christian... He gave it on the passion, which, again, is quite a difficult thing to do for 12-year-olds, but he did it so well that I became a convert. Well, let's move to Paris. I think this music, Beethoven's For Elise, transports you back there. Why is that? I had no musical education. I didn't know what music was for. I'd listened to bits on the radio, I suppose, from time to time. And it was break, and one of the girls, we were 11, all of us, was playing on a, on a school practice piano and various sort of pop songs which we sang to. And then she started playing Beethoven's Lettre à Elise. And I was, I was in tears and I didn't know why. And what I had no idea was that one of the purposes of music is to express longing and sadness. What I was hearing was a form of, a, a musical form of homesickness.
Lewis playing the bagatelle in A minor by Beethoven for Elise. Teresa Kessie, after university, you trained as a criminal barrister and started practicing in London. What brought you to that career? Because at the time, it must have been quite unusual being a woman doing that job. It was a sort of process of elimination, really. I had actually been working for a publishing company and got quite bored of it. It didn't seem to be what I wanted to spend my life doing as a career. So I moved to the bar and did the bar exams. But you found that this didn't really suit you either, didn't you? Actually appearing in court as a barrister's counsel, I just find so frightening that no form of speaking could ever frighten me again. And after about 18 months of that, I took a sort of sidestep and became a court clerk in the Inner London Magistrate's Service, which was much easier, much less demanding, much less frightening above all. And I did that for about seven years, I suppose. Um, but ultimately was dissatisfied by it. If, unless you've got a very buoyant character, dealing with crime all day, every day, five days a week, is actually very lowering to one's morale. You mentioned um, being bored uh, in, in your first uh, career. Um, and I imagine to some people the idea of being in an enclosed community in a monastery uh, would conjure up a, an idea of being bored. Tell them why they would be wrong about that. I think boredom is a fact of life. Everybody at some point is bored, and one has to learn how to deal with it. Um, contrary to what people think about the contemplative life, it is actually it's very, very highly structured, for one thing. It, we stick to an extremely strict timetable. There is only an hour in the day which we can actually call our own for the rest of the time one is either at God's service or at the service of the community and one is doing something that said I mean we don't have things to counteract but we don't we have a television but it's watched so rarely that it must be one of the few televisions in the country that has a specially made cover for it so it doesn't get dusty <laughs> One learns to lower one's sights. One doesn't hanker after the Chelsea Flower Show. One goes out and looks to see what sort of wildflowers there are around so that you don't want something very grandiose. Something quite plain and simple gives one as much satisfaction as something much more expensive or posher. Theresa Keswick, why did you decide to give up law? You mentioned earlier how uh, a retreat had uh, brought you round to Christianity. But then to give up the law and become an enclosed nun is uh, an even bigger step. And did you have a sudden realisation that there was a vocation? The preliminary was a really very, very unpleasant day in court when I, I don't know, I'd lost my temper and everything had gone wrong, my paperwork had gone wrong, and I'd been rude to the solicitors. And it was perfectly dreadful, and I took stock at that point and I thought here I am I was actually quite nice when I was 18 and I'm not very nice anymore and I'd been lapsed um, for a long time and I thought well I think the only thing I can do is to go back to practicing my faith so I started to do that and I got the help of a priest who I used to go and see on the oh I went once a month and we'd talk about things and he'd give me books to read and he told me to read Teresa of Avila's life, Teresa of Avila being 
16th century foundress or re-foundress of the Carmelite order. And I couldn't get hold of the life, which is actually a fascinating book, and I got hold of the constitutions, which weren't actually even drawn up by her, because I couldn't find the life. And I read these awful things, very stringent and very sort of cruel, and I thought, this can't be right. And so I went to the priest the next day and I said, look, I, I'm really fed up with reading books by nuns and this sort of thing. I'm, I don't want any more. And I was really quite... I wasn't very polite. And out of the blue, he said, oh, have you ever wondered whether you yourself had a vocation? And I said, no, of course I haven't. Don't be so silly. And went out and slammed the door. And then I went home and I thought, my goodness, I've got a horrible feeling he's right. <laughs> Um, so that was how it happened. It's not, ple- for me anyway, it wasn't a pleasant experience. It was like being hit by a ten-ton truck. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I had a very nice life in London, friends and a flat and social life and all sorts of things. And I just thought it through and, I, and for about a year and went and looked at various places and came to the conclusion that I would should spend my life as a Carmelite very specifically because of partly because of the way they pray, which is very free, as opposed to the Benedictines, which is much more intellectual and academic, although they've got a lot in common. What did your family say when you told them of your decision? (laughs) I couldn't possibly repeat that. (laughs) Um, Nobody was at all pleased. Was it hard to adjust to that life in the monastery? Yes, it was very difficult indeed. I knew it was going to be. I spent a week here. You spend a week just so that you can get to know a little bit about how the life is lived, because until you do it, you have no idea. And also the nuns need to get to know you to see if you're in some way suitable. It was very trying, and I cried for a week, basically, because I thought, this is too awful, I can't do it. Everything was odd about it. But anyway, all that sort of thing faded out eventually, and after I'd been here for seven days, I woke up, quite happy, thinking, yes, actually, I can live this life and it could be for me if they'll have me. What did you miss most about your former life in those early days? Without doubt, the company of friends and also on a sort of material level, not being able to go to France, very specifically not being able to go to French markets which I always love. And are there things about the outside world that you still miss? No, not really. The same things, really. I don't don't crave anything much now. Life as a Carmelite nun. Michael Barclay was talking to Sister Teresa Keswick. Now, Sister Teresa mentioned St Teresa of Avila, so here's Brother Michael Talbot with a song inspired by one of her sayings or one of her writings... Christ has no body now but yours. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world? Yours are the feet with which he walks to do 
Malcolm Gite has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's reading of Psalm 25, is followed by the English Baroque service and the Monteverdi Choir under John Elliot Gardner, singing part of Bach's Cantata BWV 34. A response to Psalm 25. The gates will open for us both. Look up. I hear that voice each day when I'm downcast. I hear it when I'm almost lost my hope. And now, when I'm entangled by my past, my feet are netted by necessity, snared in the traps of time that bind so fast, my eyes turn downward, dimmed by what they see. I hear that voice again and raise my eyes, and he untangles me and sets me free. He alters my perspective. The wide skies speak of his mercy, and the distant hills stand in his steadfast love and make me wise in his simplicity. And all my ills diminish and recede to their true size, that I may find my peace in all he wills.
Next we have a song based on parts of Psalm 139. It seems to me to be in line with some of Malcolm Geith's thinking there. The Clifton Cathedral Choir with O God, You Search Me and You Know Me. Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Today she's got a story for us about first impressions. A few years back, the actress Michelle Pfeiffer appeared on the cover of a magazine with the caption, What Michelle Pfeiffer Needs Is, and underneath it said, Absolutely Nothing. 
However, it was later discovered by a reporter that Michelle Pfeiffer actually did need something after all. She needed over $1,500 worth of touch-up work on the cover photo. From the touch-up artist's bill, here is a list of the things that were done to make Michelle Pfeiffer look beautiful. Clean up complexion. Soften eye lines, soften smile lines, add colour to lips, trim chin, remove necklines, soften line under earlobe, add highlights to earrings, add blush to cheek, clean up neckline, remove stray hair, remove hair strands on dress, adjust colour and add hair to the top of head, add dress and side to create better line, add forehead, add dress on shoulder, soften neck muscle a bit, clean up and smooth dress folds under arm and create one seam image on right side. Total price, $1,525. Most of us know that the old adage, the camera never lies, just isn't true. Yet many continue to compare themselves unfavourably with media stars. Truth be told, a lot of people hate their bodies because of the perfect images pushed by the media. Some people feel too fat or too thin or despise particular body parts like that nose they inherited from their father's side of the family or those ears that seem to be different shapes. In fact, they hate everything that doesn't fit the unblemished and airbrushed ideals of bodies in magazines and on movie screens. Other people struggle with bodies that have been damaged by accident or disease and daily experience pain or difficulty or embarrassment as they move physically through the world. Our bodies are vulnerable and almost none of our bodies fits that narrow definition of what society considers beautiful or athletic. And remember that this has been a constantly changing ideal over the centuries. Used to be you had a bit of fat on your bones. You were well thought of. But remember too that it's not just women that are bombarded with images of perfect bodies. Men are too. Our society fawns over people whose outer appearance is judged to be attractive, as if they've done something to deserve it. In a way, these stories come to us from a very early age, from the time when we're very, very young. For example, Snow White and Sleeping Beauty both had men fall in love with them while they were comatose. Not a lot to do with personality. But it's not only how we look at the outer appearance. We also focus on what happens on the outward us. And that's okay to a certain extent. We should care for ourselves, both physically and in the way that we think and feel about our bodies. It means not punishing our body by refusing its sleep, by overloading it with the demands of work, by overloading it with things that are not good for us, by ignoring signs of illness. However, some go further. 
They exercise it, starve it, stretch it, lift it, nip it and tuck it. They tan it, they dress it up in designer labels. But here's the truth of the matter. You can do whatever you want to the outer body, the outer you, but none of that will actually help. Because here is the thing, the most important thing that people push to the back of their minds. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 4.16, outwardly, we're wasting away. He's telling us that the outer you is temporary. Then he says, but the inner you, well, that's something totally different. Therefore, do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's important. The inner you is eternal. Your spirit, the inner character, the real you, is always in the process of becoming something that God tells us will never cease to exist. And it's that, it's that that God sees when he looks at us. And it's that which matters to him most. Here's Ray Charles with Everything is Beautiful in Its Own Way.
Sorensen is a regular contributor to Pause for Thought on Radio 2. Alan has given us permission to broadcast some of his God spots, and today he has one on coughing and confessing. See if anyone ever asks you if your cough's better. Just say to them, Oh yeah, I've been practising all week. Well, I had a cough last week, and guess what? I'm going to tell you all about it. No, I don't want to put you off your food, but... See all that stuff you cough up? It's horrible. Boy, am I glad to get rid of it. And I'll bet you are too, aren't you? Funny thing, though, how I try to hang on to thoughts and attitudes, you know, grudges, spite, selfishness, all these things inside me that seem disgusting to God. Confession is good for the soul, they say. It's just spiritual coughing. Excessive blessings to you. Doodly the new. Uh, here's a song. This one goes back really to some of Mary Haddo's thoughts. It's Graham Kendrick with How Much Do You Think You Are Worth? Is a rich man worth more than a fallen? A stranger worth less than a friend? Is a baby worth more than an old man? Your beginning worth more than your Is a president worth more than his assassin? Does your value decrease with your crime? Like when Christ took the place of the rabbis, would you say he was wasting his time? Someone is willing to play. I suppose that you think that you matter. Well, how much do you matter to whom? It's much easier at night when with friends and bright lights than much later alone in your room. Do you think they'll miss one in a billion? Finish this old human race. Does it really make much of a difference when your friends have forgotten your face? Well, how much do you think you are worth? Would anyone stand up and say, Would you say that a man is worth nothing? Until someone is willing to pay If you heard that your life had been valued That a price had been paid on the nail Would you ask what was traded, how much and who paid it 
Who was he and what was his name? If you heard that his name was called Jesus, would you say that the price was too dear? Held to the cross, not by nails, but by love. It was you who broke his heart, not the spear. Would you say you are worth what it cost him? You say no, but the price stays the same. If it don't make you cry, laugh it off, pass it by. But just remember the day when you throw worth boy will anyone stand up and say and tell me what are you willing to give him in return for the price that he paid this one's called the holy highway 